Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 122, recorded April 20th, 2013. Ken? Yes? Donovan? Oh my. Oh my. Today is George Decay's 76th birthday. Wow, 7-6. That's great. That's almost patriotic. That's great. George, uh, congratulations. Yeah, I'm sure he's listening. He is, yeah. Give me a little shout out there, big guy. <laughs> uh, it's also uh, Hitler's birthday, so he, it's it's a pretty popular day to be born. Wow, both a high point and a low point. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So anyways, I thought it was kind of cool to see George Takei's name pop up there as celebrating a birthday today. Yes, indeed. And actually, before the recording, you had put out the question, where did George get that wonderful catchphrase that just is so appropriate for his... Very deep voice. If anybody oh listening my. knows, I would like to know the answer to that. Yeah, when did, where did he pick that up? That that wasn't in a Star Trek episode that I'm aware of, so it must have been in something else, right? Right. And, I mean, now it's his... He's synonymous with saying that, so... I mean, he's not like a... You know, he's famous, but he's not, like, super famous, where he exactly. could come up with a catchphrase and just it catch on. So it has to be from somewhere. Exactly. Yeah, right, and it's not like he's been in that many big vehicles that would get a lot of um, attention, get a lot of viewing, other than the Star Trek stuff, Star unfortunately. Trek. Uh, so, well, that and uh, Heroes, but I'm pretty sure he didn't say that in Heroes either. Was it uh, one of the movies? Does he say it in one of the movies? I, I don't know. Like Maybe we'll, we'll find out from, up or from the vast oh. audience. All right, so if you know, I don't give know. us a ring, drop us a note. We'd love yeah. it. So, but anyways, today is episode 122, and we're covering Deep Space Nine by Malibu Comics 16, 17, and 18. Right. We finish off yeah. 1994 and start 1995. Right. So there are three, you know, nice little comics. They're all their own stories. They're not connected to each other in any way. And, you know, they're, they're fine. Overall, I, I liked them. But, yep. you know, they weren't like, wow, fantastic issues. But uh, they were pretty good. And I kind of like the, is it the middle one? I think I like the middle one pretty good. Yeah, the um, the Cardassian one? Right. I did, because, well, we'll get to it. <laughs> yeah, my only complaint, especially with the first two, is that it seems that they end them very abruptly. Uh, yeah. That, you know, you they find out what is going on and then the next panel is it's already all over everything's wrapped up time to go on which right. just seems abrupt but we'll get into it in here in a second so any other general topics nope i think i'm i'm good okay in that case let's get with issue number 16 which is titled shanghai writer is john bornholt penciler leonard kirk inker is jack snyder and richard emmond Letterer Dave Lamphere. Color design by Moose Bauman. 
Interior color, violet, use with Janice Wismar. Editor is Mark Panacea. The cover shows a very large, bald, stubbly, self-satisfied alien towering over Quark and Rom while they are washing a large stack of filthy dishes. Whoever this big guy is, he's really enjoying degrading Quark and Rom. The story opens in DS9's operations center. Kira is welcoming a new ship to the dock at Port 1. It's a Jurakan ship. Dax explains the Jurakans are long-haul traders from Merak 3 who tend to be loners. Kira wonders what they are doing at the station. In Quark's, Dr. Bashir is witnessing Quark giving two Bajorans the brush off. They're looking for work. They're practically begging for it. But Bashir criticizes Quark when Quark fires back, saying four to five Bajorans a day come by looking for work. He can't give even a fraction of them work. There's just too many. It's not his fault. Bajor is a boring planet. Rom tells Quark there are three Jakarans seated at table 12. Quark makes his way over to them. Quark offers them the hospitality of the house. Captain Bach of the good ship Sarpak says they have all the food and drink they need, but what they really need are two additional crew members. Bach slips Quark a sizable tip if he would help them find candidates. Quark says no problem, and directs them to the two Bajorans looking for work earlier to the uh, Jerrican's table. They all leave for Sarpak, and it takes off through the wormhole with the two Bajorans. Three days later, Odo enters Quark's and tells him that the two Bajorans he set up with the Jakarans are reported missing by their families. It turns out Jakarans are not above shanghaiing people for long trips. Odo tells Quark he will help them get the two Bajorans back, or he will be up on charges of kidnapping. Quark agrees. Odo tells Quark the first Jakaran ship is not due back for two years, and the Jakaran government claims ignorance of Shanghai activity. So, the plan is to take advantage of another Jakaran ship that's due to dock tomorrow. When the Jakarans ask Quark to broker another set of crew member candidates, he will sell them on two of Odo's security people disguised as normal Bajorans. When they get aboard the Jerrican ship, they will tap into their computers and find out where the first ship is headed. Odo tells Quark not to tell anyone about the plan. Quark says he won't. The next day, when the Jakarans show up in the bar, Quark sells them on two candidates that he will bring to their ship in an hour. The Jerrikans agree and leave for their ship. After Quark tells Rom about the plan, Rom says his reputation will be shot if anyone finds out Quark helped Odo to arrest customers of his. Quark figures he will solve the problem by going to the Jerrikans right away, tell them about the plan, and recommend that they leave immediately before Odo's two men show up at the ship. When he arrives at the Jerrikan ship, Rom shows up at the last minute and they both enter. Quark tells the Jerrican captain, named Cars, the situation and advises them to depart before they get arrested. The captain says they will leave, but they need two more crew to make up their full complement of eight. They knock Quark and Rom out and depart the station with them as crewmen seven and eight. The captain gives orders to follow the first ship, named the Sarpak, through the wormhole to the Gamma Quadrant. The Jakarans put Quark and Rom 
to the most menial of work, cleaning the kitchen and peeling potatoes. When Quark and Rom are finally left alone, Rom takes on a more serious air about him and transforms into Odo. It was Odo all along, counting on Quark's deceitful nature that would attempt to screw him, and the Jerrican's hiring practices that would take whomever they had to if they were forced to leave in a hurry. Quark has never been so happy to see Odo. Odo says he should temper his joy until they figure out a way to take over the ship. Quark says he has an idea about that. Later, Quark and Odo are able to convince the Jarakins that Ram just died of a Rulian plague and that Quark has it too. The only cure is back at DS9, and to keep from catching it, they should lock themselves away in a remote part of the ship until they all get to the station. They comically fall for it, turn the ship around, and run to lock themselves in. With control over the ship, Odo contacts the first ship and tells them to turn around and head to DS9, where they will turn over the two Shanghai Bajorans immediately. They comply when Odo plays hardball and tells them if they do not cooperate, they will be arrested when they return to DS9, and all their cargo will be confiscated. Both ships eventually arrive, and their captains taken into custody. The two Bajorans are back and headed to see their families. Happy ending. When Quark gets back to the bar, he finds that Rom has renamed it to Rom's Casino and is making himself comfortable as the new proprietor with a Daba girl on each arm. Quark storms in and puts Rom in his place, then hugs him, saying it's good to be home. The end. So, another example of Odo with his having no problems making humanoid faces. I have the same problem with the story. Right. So he can't do human faces. That's why he's all kind of smooth and everything, with right. with very little detail. But he can do a perfect rom. Yep. Yep, and we've seen him do it in other of these issues, too, where he can make himself look exactly like a Cardassian so that he could pretend yep. to be somebody's husband, and now he's pretending yep. to be somebody's brother and is able to pull it off so exactly that Quark is not able to notice that he doesn't act exactly like Rom. Right. Just a little too little too on the nose than yep. what we've seen Odo be able to do. Yeah, well, right. At the beginning, I thought they made a big point in the early days of DS9. Made a point that he couldn't do human faces. They were just too complicated or something. I don't know what right. it was. Yep. Uh, he was trying to make a Bajoran face, because that's who found him first. And he right. could never get Quite it. Quite get it. And yeah. Uh, yeah, that's why he looks the way he looks. And even when the founders and the whole Dominion War, that's that's a big player, because the, the other founders are able to do it, and he's not. Yet here in these comic books, he's able to do it just fine. Right. When when it's needed for the plot. Exactly. So it's a compromise. It's inconsistency, but whatever. I and I gotta say that I figured Odo got aboard the ship somehow, but I didn't figure he took over by impersonating Rom. I just I just didn't see that coming <laughs> myself. But so right. When it was exposed, and especially when you see Rom in that particular panel, where now he's got more serious look on his face and his eyes are coming up through shadows or something, where it's right. like, that's not Rom. 
then it was like, oh, it's Odo. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, Rom taking advantage of the situation. I I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. That was funny. But it's like the only thing he really knew is that Quark went down to the Jerrican ship. And then now he's not there anymore. Or he can't find him anyway. Right. So I guess he made the leap pretty quickly that he was Shanghai and he could take over the bar pretty quickly. I, at least I didn't think he And they didn't seem sure. to be gone all that long. No. So it was a little little fast to have a new sign made, but it was funny. Yeah, yeah I, I, I liked it. It was, it was, yeah, the, the whole thing was, was definitely going for levity, ergo the uh, cover. Right. Which is pretty funny. And the, the aliens themselves are uh, a little comical to look at with their jowly yeah, the cheeks big, and stuff like yeah. that. They're big, kind of fat, but also they look pretty powerful too, uh, kind of guys. All right. They kind of remind me, um, and maybe we'll have to cut this part out, but on uh, Men in Black, one of the movies, there was a alien called a Balchinian. Okay. And they this these guys kind of remind me of, oh, of that. that guy. Ah. <laughs> Balchinian. Cool. Because I don't, they, I don't remember that. They had testicles for chins. Oh! <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, like I said, we'll probably have to cut that part out. Okay. Or don't not. need to be or talking not. about testicles on the show. Oh, well, eh, eh, it's... Eh. I don't think that makes it non-G rated, but yeah. <laughs> Something that was kind of annoying to me is towards the end, the Jarikins, even though they Shanghai people, were almost presented as, oh, they're not so bad. They return people after like two years or something, and they even pay them. Right. So it's like, you're taking people. You're kidnapping them. Kidnapping. No, that's not, that's not okay. And since but, when did Bajorans, when did they become so hard up for jobs? I mean, that that was kind of news to me. Yeah. I well, mean, because, because the storyline needed that. <laughs> but yeah, they were the ones that were like, oh, I, it's not that bad. I just wish they would have let me know <laughs> beforehand. But aside yeah, from that, it's all good. Gave me the choice. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and that there's no, I mean, they say if you don't come back with us right now, we're going to do all this stuff to you but they had no problem you know if they dropped off those two back that uh, that they were all previous uh, kidnappings are forgotten yeah yep yeah seemed a little like I said like I said uh, at the beginning the the endings on both of these first two just seem very short just yeah we have to abrupt abrupt well my last comment on this one is at the end when Rom's got the two Dabo girls and Quark comes in shouting at him. The blonde on the left is quite attractive, mm-hmm. but the alien to the right, who is showing the bottom of her breasts, I must add, she's got a... Uh, wow, that is one ugly face. <laughs> and it's like, only Rom could go for that. Oh, she's not that bad. Oh my God, look at that. She, she's got no nose, and you can see the nostril holes just going right in there. It's kind of disturbing. Huh. Well, I didn't think it was all that bad. And talking about things on people's... What are those two knots on her forehead? 
Those are just cranial ridges, kind of like what the Klingons have. Just So they're kind of oval-shaped. Yep. And they're right next to each other. Yep. Okay. I just thought I'd point out they look a little odd. Um, she looked. She looked alien to me. I didn't. I didn't uh, think about it too hard. I don't know what kind of <laughs> alien species she's supposed to be, but I don't know either. But I must say, uh, her her skin is very alien. Her head is very alien. But the rest of her, including her her bare stomach and um, oh, bottom of her breasts, are quite uh, human. Yes. Yes. Yeah, they use that uh, that outfit a lot here in these comics. Yes, wasn't it? A few issues ago, that uh, or maybe last episode. Well, I whatever. It, actually, I think Not it's the last couple ago. of episodes we've done Deep Space Nine. This costume has made an appearance. Yes, very racy, very racy. Obviously. So again, who is this comic written for? <laughs> well, if you go by the story, you would think that it was for a younger audience because uh, it's pretty simplistic plot and things like that. But right. And I would say that for most issues, but the next issue we're doing here gets a little more serious. But right, I don't know if you want to take that as a segue or not. But yeah, segue segue away. All right. So uh, since uh, since you just brought that up, why don't we just jump straight into it? Sounds good. All right. So the next issue is entitled "Images." Came out December of 1994. All the uh, artists and letterers and everything's the same with the exception of the writer uh, this is by Lori S. Sutton. The cover shows a woman with both Cardassian and Bajoran features. So she has the cranial ridges of a Cardassian and the nose ridges of a Bajoran along with the earring. Uh, she, her eyes are closed and she seems to be praying over a Bajoran candle flame. Behind her we see Odo and Kira looking either concerned or skeptical. So the actual story starts with Kira escorting a Cardassian through the promenade. Kira calls him Maritza, yet he has the face of Dar-El, the butcherer. Kira says that he does not have to face the judgment in Dar-El's place, since he did no crimes. He is never able to respond to her since he gets a knife in the back by another Bajoran. As he lies dying on the floor... Kira is shocked when his face peels off and reveals her own face underneath. Kira wakes in her bed from the odd and confusing dream. She is then contacted by a Bajoran official. He tells her that she needs to find a Bajoran operative who will look like a Cardassian on the station. Her name is Surreal. Later that morning, Odo and Kira are walking down the promenade. She is making a big deal about how she cannot tell anybody, including him, what she's doing for the Bajoran government. Yet, she talks loud enough that a random Bajoran walking by happens to hear that she's looking for a Cardassian who is not a Cardassian. The man then contacts somebody using a wrist communicator. Later, Kira and Odo see a Cardassian at a Bajoran shrine. Kira takes the chance that this is surreal by saying her name loud enough for everybody to hear. The Cardassian turns around, and we find out that she's actually a Bajoran-Cardassian hybrid. She is excited about finally returning to Bajor after having to spend most of or all of her life on Cardassia. She tells the story about how her mother was a prisoner of war, and that she was taken away from her mother 
as a child as some sort of punishment. She says she never turned on her mother's people and was able to accumulate a lot of Cardassian intel that she plans to give Bajor. She then tries to order soup at a local vendor. The Bajoran shopkeeper calls her some horrible names and sends her on her way in tears. Kira steps in and puts him in his place. There seems to be a lot of racism here on the station today. As all this is happening, they are being watched by a man who thinks to himself that there is nowhere Surreal can hide from the organization called The Circle. The man then goes into a pet store and goes into the back where there's a group of Bajorans meeting in the dark. This is the lair of the circle, and he tells the leader of the Cardassian-Bajoran hybrid on the station. Later, Dax and Bashir are walking the promenade, and they see a shifty-looking man wearing a long cloak leave a prayer alcove. They then find the body of Surreal. She is badly beaten, but alive. And she's had a brand of the circle burned into her face. They're able to get her into the infirmary. Eventually she wakes and she begs Bashir to remove her face. She tells Odo how she longs to be featureless like him. Bashir thinks about her requests and when everyone leaves he starts to work on her. Later, Sisko is called back into the infirmary. Once there, Bashir shows him what he's been working on. The Bajoran Cardassian features are now all gone from Surreal's face. She now has pale skin with blonde hair and long eyebrow ridges. He says that she looks just like a Jandurin. Later that day, Surreal in her new form and Bashir are having soup on the promenade. No one is giving her a second look as she eats her soup in peace. She happens to see the leader of the circle walk by. She recognizes him, but he does not know who she is with her new face. She tells Bashir who he is, and Odo soon arrests him, all off screen. The story is wrapped up with Surreal leaving the station. As a parting gift, Kira gives her an earring from her mother's family. Surreal is at first pleased with it and puts it on. As the door closes to the ship, she pulls it off, saying that she is the end of the line. And I wasn't quite sure what that last line moment was supposed to be, so maybe we could talk about that first. I completely agree. It was one of those things that were a little ambiguous, so you might be able to interpret it a couple different ways. So how did you interpret it? Well, at first, I thought she was uh, going to commit suicide. Oh wow! Uh, like she's gonna blow her. They're trying to insinuate uh, like she's gonna blow her way out, you know, blow herself out an airlock or something. But they made it pretty clear she was leaving the stations. You know, right. she had he had the bag on her shoulder and things like that. So it probably wasn't that. But I guess in the end, after thinking about it for a while, and I did think about it for a while after just putting the Bajoran specific earring on that had the symbol of her family or whatever. Right. She took it back off again, and then she said end of the line. So I'm taking it that it's her putting behind her Bajoran-ness, her roots as a Bajoran. Right. That's what I thought, too. But then I wasn't sure, did Kira see her do that, or did she kind of do it 
after Kira was gone. Because, I mean, the door is shut, but there's still that glass plate, so you can still see right through it. So I wasn't sure why she made such a big deal to put it on, and then as soon as the door is shut, she rips it off and says, end of the line. Yeah. All I can assume is that, because when Kira asks, and what of you? Both of them are clearly on one side of the airlock door. Then, when she actually responds, she has already gone on the other side of the airlock door. And you see her through the glass. Right. So, it's a little awkward. I mean, either she never answered Kira, or she said something else to Kira, and then she moved through the airlock, and then the airlock closed. Uh, right. And then she said end of the line to herself. So maybe she was like, thanks, Kira, for the earrings. I'm not going to actually show you that I'm basically turning my back on all things Bajoran. I have a new life to, to, to try to make now. Right. Yeah, well, that's what I was thinking, too. Just um, it, it seemed odd that she's responding to a question and yet waits till the door is shut before she answers. Exactly. And so, then I also kind of thought, well, what if she really is a Cardassian spy and not a Bajoran spy after all? What if, uh, you know, this is all some part of some elaborate plan for the Cardassians to get her on Bajor and... Uh, you know, feed them information or whatever. Well, I don't know. Okay, so you're saying she's going to go to Bajor when she leaves DS9? I assume so. I thought that's what that that uh, you know earlier. I thought that's why you know Kira was supposed to be watching her yeah, to get her that, onto Bajor. Right, that but was her original plan. It's not. It's not it's clear not what her plan really, is now, though. Oh, and I did forget this to mention in the synopsis that. Um, Cisco signs a death certificate that she actually dies. Right. So as far as Bajor knows, she's dead. She's dead. That's so right. I guess she probably is not going back to Bajor. Well, she could go as the alien, but I think, and and I think an alien wearing a Bajoran earring would look odd. Sure. Uh, so maybe she is, but I don't think she is. I think she's just going off to wherever. Yeah, I build think a you're new right. life. Now, personally, I have a suggestion. I think Suriel should join Starfleet and become a science officer. Okay, why? Well, because this is Spock. So, same themes as Spock, although a little bit more intense. I mean, it is more intense. There's no two ways about it. It's more intense because of the pairings of the Bajoran and the Cardassians, who obviously have a lot of issues there. But he's, I mean, she's a half-breed, just like Spock is. She isn't a part of either society, just like Spock is, finding it hard to fit in on Vulcan. So Spock goes into Starfleet and is able to find acceptance and and a home. I mean, this woman has the same problems, only more intense because of what kind of half-breed she is. Right. I just saw a lot of Spock uh, theme overlap. So going to Starfleet. Come on. You didn't even have to change your body. But is a thought. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you, and, uh, I mean, you know, I need to look at the timing of this issue, um, as to when Goldicott comes out that he has a child with, yep. um, a Bajoran. Yep. And she sticks around for a while. And I think that was, what, the fourth season 
So let's see when when did this comic book come out? 1994. What season were we in then? Do you know? Uh, I would have to look it up. I don't know off the top of my head. All right. So this issue came out at the end of 1994, which is uh, the beginning season of three. season three. Yeah. So this is about a year before she'll show up on Deep Space Nine. Oh, that's the name. Uh, no, uh, her name is. Oh, she'll. She, she will, will show up. Gotcha. <laughs> no, her name is uh, Zal Tora Zial. Okay. Yeah. So, I don't know. I was I was reading a lot of her in in this issue. Uh, so it's kind of interesting that it, this came out a year before that storyline started on Deep Space Nine. Right. Either it's random chance or. Boom! Another idea taken from the pages of comics. Right. Right. Yes. I always liked Zuriel's character. I always hated how she left the show. I don't remember how she left the show. Uh, well, she doesn't make it to the end. Oh, she disappears or she dies? She dies. Oh, okay, okay, gotcha. Well, that's, un- that's unfortunate. And, and I think that was one of the things... I mean, there were multiple things that I thought were emotional... And dare I say poignant in this book. You said personal? Poignant. Oh. And the whole death thing of that character in the in the in the episode uh, in the TV show. The, I mean, I'm sure they played that up as being a pretty uh emotional thing. Sure. So, definitely there are multiple things going on in here I thought were uh at least elicited some emotion in me uh, as I was reading it. So, yeah, yeah, it was the bigotry is the part that I really had a hard time reading. I guess. I mean, just you'd think that in the future they wouldn't have that kind of stuff. Even if, I mean, the, that well, poor girl didn't do all those horrible things that the Cardassians no. did. No, of course not. Of course and not. Yet, but they don't know that. Even the shopkeepers like being so horrible to her. Right. Was, but but the Bajorans were subjugated by the Cardassians. Sure. Um, I think they have reason to feel as they do, even though it is completely driven by emotion and absolutely no sense of, well, it's, it's all prejudice, just based on, you know, not knowing somebody, just totally saying what they are and just believing it. And the thing that makes me also very unhappy is the human tendency to use religion to advance an agenda that has nothing to do with religion. I mean, ethnic purity... You're talking about the circle? Sure, of course. Right. So, ethnic purity being something that is religion-based? Now, now I I know, I I think that's basically the way uh, uh, Judaism is. I mean, they... It's a religion, but they also, at least my understanding is, traditionally, they, they, they try to... You know, they try to stay within uh, in their own religion uh, race uh, right. as, as they're selecting uh, husbands and wives. But making that religious... I mean, I guess you could make anything you want to to be religious-based. It's just, it's just annoying how some people will use religion to advance any agenda that really has nothing directly to do with the religion, really. It's just their read of it. I hate right. that. <laughs> but and 
and there's no two ways about it. The, the the writer of this is playing up on that. I mean, right. they, they they've got they've got a point to make themselves, which I think is the same one I just said. But you know, they're pushing that idea also, obviously, especially the character of that that bald guy. I forgot what his name was, but the guy who was pulling the strings, right, uh, of the uh, of the folks that are in the circle. Anyway, right. I really, well, I, I just, just really thought that, that they were making uh, you know allusions to stuff that happens in in our life, right? I mean, the whole World War II kind of being, you know, this horrible occupation in that some people, uh, you know, want to blame everybody, all Germans for, for what happened and things like that. I mean, that's still... You don't hear about it that much, but, I mean, you're sure there's still some of that going on. I thought that's kind of where they were going with it. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't think that at all. Okay. Okay. But you might be more right than, than I am. <laughs> well, no, that I mean, uh, the, I mean the thing about Germans though is they look like, I mean visually they look like the British or Americans. Right. And I think there was more, uh, in a different way. I think there was more th- things racially wrong with how uh, the Japanese people were treated. But. Um, I mean, Japanese-Americans particularly, but right. in the U.S. Yeah, anyway, the whole thing about um, ethnic differences and prejudice, and uh, a lot of it was exercised here. Um, right. Anyway, yes, but that, uh, that, that, that poor woman, Suriel reacting to Odo's uh, smooth face and then honestly asking Bashir to destroy her face, I thought that was a, a moment that had some teeth in it. Sure, and I hated it. I absolutely hated that she felt like she had to do that. Right. I mean, this is a woman that lived as a prisoner. I mean, she her mother was a prisoner. I assume she was born while her mother was a prisoner, and she was taken away from her mother as some yep. form of punishment. Yep. And the only thing that got her through it was that she couldn't wait to get to her mother's home, eat you know eat the food that her mother always talked about, live in her mother's culture and when she gets here she's treated the way she is so so badly that she even has to uh, you know stop being what she what guide her through all the horrible stuff she had to live through yep I mean she lived just to be a Bajoran and then when she finally gets to be one they take it away from her yeah hated it yep yep so it isn't too often that uh, comic books can elicit a little bit of emotion out of the reader, but it did twice for me in this book. So good writing. Yeah. I, I, I mean, that's what Star Trek always kind of does, right? Kind of puts, puts a spin on something that happens in real life mm-hmm. so that you can see how ridiculous it is and stop doing it in your Maybe. own life. Yep. That's what the best Star Trek does. Some is just escapism, but uh, some of the best scripts definitely do that. Right. Okay, I have nothing. Let me see. I think that's it for me to say. Yes, those are all my comments. Uh, I had one other comment um, while I was doing the synopsis that I forgot to write down. Hold on one second. Oh, yeah. The Circle. Is that something that existed in the series that I don't remember? I don't don't remember. I don't remember The Circle. Myself, yeah, I didn't either. But... I mean, I remember the that be- 
that beginning part, Dar Darrell or Darhill, whatever you want to say his name, Darhill mm-hmm. the butcher. Right. He's from an actual episode. Uh, you know, he was a a war criminal or whatever. But um, I didn't remember anything in regards to the circle. Yeah. And, neither way. Okay. And then that whole first part, I, I thought was very convenient for what the story was going to be. Uh, a Cardassian <laughs> exactly. or a Bajoran disguised as a Cardassian. Exactly. So does Kira have some kind of psychic ability that she doesn't realize? It reminded me a lot of Empire Strikes Back where Luke is in the Dagobah cave fighting <laughs> Darth Vader, <laughs> chops his head off and then comes to find out his own face is inside the helmet. Sure. Meaning he can't go to the dark side or whatever, right? I don't know. I mean, he has the possibility of going bad or or staying good on the good side of the force. That's what all that meant, right? I don't know. When I was a kid, I always thought it was some sort of premonition that he's like Vader, meaning that well, exactly, his father. He could he could could follow the path of his father, right? So part of the training, and I always took that as uh, somehow through through the wonderful force or something that Yoda was able to orchestrate that vision somehow to help teach him in about the most unobvious way possible. <laughs> Watch out for the dark side. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Right. I just I was really getting that vibe when I read that first two pages. Yeah. Shall we move on? Let's do. Okay, I got the next issue, and this one is issue number 18. The name is Hearts of Gold. Published date is October 1994. The writer is Loria Sutton. Penciler is Leonard Kirk. Inkers, Jack Snyder, Richard Emmond, and Larry Welch. Mike Delphine is the letterer. Color designed by Barry Gregory. Interior colors, Violet Hughes with Janice Wismer. Editor is Mark Panacea. Assistant editor is Clarissa Manasala. I think I got all that right. Yeah, okay. Synopsis. Uh, The cover shows Dax looking wide-eyed and fearful of the gun that is pointing at her face, which is being held by a purple-skinned alien. He has Dax by the shoulders, so she is not going anywhere. She is under his power. Dax and Bashir are having a cup of coffee in a public area. They catch sight of a young alien couple who are obviously deeply in love. Bashir makes the admission that he would give anything if Dax would look at him that way. Dax barely completes acknowledging the comment when Dax spots someone she knows very well and rushes to him with a big old heartfelt embrace. Not only is Julian very surprised, but so is the Klingon female that the man is with that Dax just embraced. Judzia introduces Gwyn, one of her oldest and dearest childhood friends. Gwyn says they were more than just friends, and now she is more than just Judzia. Judzia proudly states that she is the eighth generation Dax. Gwyn states that he is just Gwyn quite single, which has a unique meaning for Trills. Dax displays sadness for her friend that he apparently never felt the benefits of pairing with a symbiote. Gwyn recognizes the sympathy on her face and becomes short and tells them he is fine being single and that they can talk more tomorrow. Gwyn and his Klingon companion moves on suddenly. 
Dax explains to Jillian about how Gwyn rejected the whole idea of joining with a symbiote. It's the only philosophical gulf between them that kept them from getting married. Gwen and his Klingon companion Tev enter Quark's bar. Later, Gwyn and his Klingon companion Tev enter Quark's. When Tev walks up to the bar to get a drink, he encounters Odo, who says he smells different. He introduces himself as security chief. She says she likes the law. When she sits down with Gwyn, they say they need to watch out for Odo. There is too much at stake to risk the local constable getting in their way. Elsewhere, Dax remembers her youth with Gwyn. Her success in school, passing the symbiote compatibility tests, the rift that grew between them. Meanwhile, in a seedy part of the station, Gwyn and Tev are up to no good. They enter a special place that Quark recommended by just speaking Quark's name into the door microphone. The door opens and they enter into a secret casino loaded with the scum of two quadrants. They mingle and Gwyn lets it be known he is looking for someone named Corin. Everyone they ask feigns ignorance of Corin's whereabouts. Meanwhile in Ops, Kira and Dax are playing air traffic controllers and due to distractions, Dax makes multiple mistakes that almost causes spaceship collisions. Sisko notices and calls Dax into his office. Jedzia unloads about Gwyn. She thought she was over him, but the return of the first love of her life has triggered a flood of old feelings, and they are driving her crazy. Sisko finally tells her to go to Gwyn and work this out before she crashes a few freighters together she did not plan on smashing today. She leaves Sisko's office. Later at Quark's, Odo walks up to the proprietor, who seems to be preoccupied. Odo tells Quark he has just shut down a floating craps game in the lower decks and is surprised when Quark shows no interest. Quark tells Odo that Dax is in a hollow suite with the guy that came into the bar last night with a Klingon female. That guy was asking all about mercenaries and black market groups, so Quark figures he is bad news. Quark won't give Odo any more specifics, so Odo goes back to his office and starts researching arriving vessel records as a starting place to find out more about the female Klingon and the Trill. He finds their ship is the Meanderer and that they have visited five or more of the most disreputable ports of call in all the quadrant. They have no criminal records, but Odo thinks they have just not been caught yet. He thinks they are up to no good and are somehow dragging Dax into it. He calls Sisko and explains his theories. Sisko tries to contact Dax, but gets no response. Odo's security grid suddenly detects phaser fire near Quark's. In the bar, Gwyn and Tev are pinned down by phaser fire from Corin, who is the man they were searching for the previous night. Corin has Dax by the arms that are twisted behind her back. Corin makes his way out of the bar with Dax and onto the promenade, firing at passers-by. Odo and his security team close in and tell him to let Dax go, but Corin says no way because she is his ticket off the station. Gwyn exposes himself and tells Corin he will not follow Corin if he just lets Dax go. Gwyn's distraction is all Odo needs to change shape into a large black bird that flies at Corrin's face. This distraction is all Dax needs to escape Corrin's hold and kick him into a produce stand. 
Gwyn runs to Jedzia, which somehow also distracts Odo, which gives Corrin the time he needs to get up and make a break for it. Gwyn and Tev take off after Corrin, while Odo puts out a station-wide APB on Corrin, Gwyn, and Tev. Dax asks if it's really necessary to include Gwyn and Tev on that, and Odo says yes. Gwyn and Tev apprehend Corrin, just as Odo and his team apprehend all three of them. It turns out that Gwyn and Tev are bounty hunters, and Corrin has a profitable bounty on his head, which they collect. Gwyn and Dax say their goodbyes. Odo and Tev say their goodbyes. Dax tells Sisko he thinks she will see if Julian is up for having a cup of coffee. The end. Woof, that was a good one. Or not. (laughs) (laughs) Or not. I liked it. It was fine. Yeah. You know, it was a little convenient, but it was fine. Right. I mean, the the whole mystery of what Gwen was doing was was good. Right. I mean, they did play it up like he was, you know, he might have gone bad. He might be, I don't know, a revolutionary, or he might be just a criminal. So when it turns out he was a bounty hunter, all the things that Odo learned about him made sense now. So I kind of I, I like that too. Right. Yeah, I liked that that whole aspect, the whole Jidzia, you know, paths not taken kind of thing with with a a past lover kind of thing or a you know boyfriend whatever you want to call him. I liked that story and I liked him. It was just the the Klingon woman was kind of a a wild card that I couldn't quite ever really care about because she has like what Wolverine sniffing powers or or I didn't understand <laughs> how she could smell everything yeah. that's not a, a an ability most Klingons show right but it would be handy for a bounty hunter yeah that you could just smell somebody oh he's, he smells like the law I mean it was just <laughs> and especially great. Odo Odo probably doesn't smell like your normal humanoid right but I, I didn't understand that, and yeah. Then they had the big bar scene, uh, you know, like something from the cantina scene in Star Wars or Star Trek uh, Three, where they have the big bar scene there. That also seemed like really they have this this huge of a illegal gambling ring somewhere in, oh. in Deep Space Nine that nobody knows about. Oh, the floating craps game. You're Is that what that was? That was yeah. the floating craps game. That okay. that Odo shut down later. Okay, I wasn't sure if it was the same thing because this looks like a full-fledged bar. Yeah, I not agree. Not just a, you know, a couple people playing craps on the floor. Yeah, or a lot of people playing craps like in a in a big empty room. It, right. it does look like a like a fully fitted out like bar. I mean, there's people playing cards in one place, playing dice in another place, right. drinking drinks, fighting, throwing yep. money all up in the air. I mean, it right. it looks huge. <laughs> right, I agree. <laughs> It doesn't look like it would float too well. Exactly. And yeah. then they got that big dinosaur-looking dude walking behind uh, Gwen. Yep, yep. I mean, I've never seen anything like that. No. But, I mean, it, it's a cool scene. I just don't buy that uh, that something like that could be going on on Deep Space Nine and nobody know about it. Right. But, like you said, Odo did find out about it later, so. Yeah. But, yeah, I like the story overall, just uh, there was a few parts that just kind of took me out of it. Yeah. Like, uh, right, okay, so that part. What other part? 
Well, the the Gwen, the not Gwen. What's her name? Tev, the Klingon right. woman, and oh, oh, okay, the that, those the okay, those two, okay, yeah, yeah. I I I didn't have a problem uh, with Tev. Uh, I mean, she was obviously a background character. She was, you know, uh, a supporting character. I kind of liked how they were insinuating she might have had a little thing for Odo, which I thought was kind of funny. Yeah, they're uh, on page seven where she tells him, I like the law, and she gives him a little wink. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and then at the end, it's a heartfelt goodbye. And then and then Odo's reaction is like, huh? Yeah, I, th- I thought that was kind of good. It was interesting hearing a little bit of Jedzia's backstory. Right, um, that was good. I do think she was always... I mean, everybody has a right to be with who they want to be, but I always thought she was just a little bit of a poo-poo head towards Julian. I mean, he always was obviously very uh, taken with her. Right. Uh, and for the most part, you know... Everybody else was, too. In the in the yeah. early seasons of Deep Space Nine, I really did not like how everybody was in love with Jadzia. Yeah. I mean, well, Clark, Clark was, was, too, right? Yeah. Yep. And I think... Uh, yeah, who else? Julian Quark, everybody, every guest star on the show. Ah. <laughs> just, that was so, a, that was a, a very common plot point. Right. So Terry, Terry, I forgot her last name, the actress. Farrell or something. Farrell. Like that. That, yeah. that sounds right. She is a very attractive woman. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I kind of remember that. At least they got away from that uh, later on in the series. Right. When, well, when when Worf shows up and oh, yeah. they really uh, they become an item. Yes, they do. So in the end, I thought it was kind of nice that at least by the end of the show, Dax in the new form uh, w- with the neutral uh, host, they did end up finally getting together. So that was kind of nice. Right. Yeah. In the end. Yeah. It just took took her dying and coming back to life to get him together. Uh, <laughs> exactly. And then in subsequent novels or something, she obviously ends up dumping Julian and becoming a a, a starship captain. Well, I don't know about the dumping part. Uh, I hadn't gotten that far yet, but I know that she does become a captain. Right. Of that cool-looking big old starship. I forgot the name of it, but yeah. But as far Destiny as Destiny or something. I I. I I thought it was a something like not Avatar, oh, oh, yeah, but yeah, 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 Avenida yeah. or a, a, a something. I forgot. Right, 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 right. Uh, yeah. And I wouldn't mind reading those uh, one of those books one of these days when I find the time. But I, I assume that that Julian is not in those stories, but maybe he is. Uh, well, I've read some know. of the post Deep Space Nine books, and he's still there. Um, but I uh, haven't quite Space got Nine. to the part where she's. Like, like I said, I'm right. trying to read them in order, and I don't really ever have time to actually read books that I want to read um, so they're all backed up all the Deep Space Nine and the post-Nemesis stuff that right. that delves with all that right one of these days one of these days one of these days Alice you're going to get in there and, and catch up yeah so uh, yeah I, I thought it was an okay issue not not one of my favorites but pretty good you know, yep. not perfect right no I liked it do you have any other comments? I have no more comments about that, but I could move on to the mini story. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so also in this issue, we we have a it's, it's a little longer issue because we've got another little mini story that's in there. It's titled War Games, 
and it's it's kind of well it is it is a prequel it's a comic book prequel to the Voyager TV series which I never even knew this little story was in existence but it is and it was a nice little surprise for me because I kind of I, I think it's a pretty good story so uh, I'm going to begin okay so the writer is Mark A. Altman penciler is Rob Davis inker letterer and color design by Violet Hughes with uh, Janice Wismer Interior color is by Janice Wismer. Editor is Mark Panacea. On a desolate planet, a figure stands next to a line of at least five tall towers with yellow lights on top. The figure at the bottom of these towers turns out to be a Vulcan who uses a risk communicator to tell a team called Unit 5 to proceed since the force field is now down. A Starfleet team of five or so materialize in a cave with phasers set to heavy stun. They do not find who they were looking for, but do find a single Starfleet lieutenant commander named Kellaway locked in a storage cabinet. Lieutenant Costello, the leader of the strike team, tells Kellaway to tell him the whole story of what happened here and how he came to be locked in the cabinet. Kellaway says he was on shore leave on Riza and was kidnapped by a beautiful woman he had met and her companions. They pressed him into service using his engineering training to get their ship running that had been grounded. After fixing up the ship, they took off to the planet they are on now. Suddenly, they locked him in the cabinet and said a Starfleet team is on their way. Next thing he knew, Costello's team were getting him out of the cabinet. Lieutenant Costello contacts Admiral Nachayev in the Starfleet ship that's in orbit. He reports the Maquis abducted a Starfleet engineer. The Admiral tells them to complete their sweep and meet her on the ship at 400 hours for a debriefing. Costello and Kellaway enter the Admiral's office, where a Cardassian also awaits. Not long after they are in the room, Kellaway exposes himself as a Maquis agent and makes ready to shoot the Cardassian with Costello's stolen phaser. The Vulcan, that we had seen on the away mission earlier, enters unexpectedly behind Kellaway, grabs his phaser hand, and knocks him out with a Vulcan neck pinch. The Cardassian named Gull Evac is outraged, proclaiming that Starfleet can't control the Maquis in the demilitarized zone or even on their own ships. A message comes in from the Gull ship that a Cardassian listening post has picked up Chakotay's ship heading to the Badlands. The Gull tells his ship to bring him back up. They are going after Chakotay themselves. The Admiral tells her comm officer to get Captain Janeway of the Voyager on subspace Priority One. To and be the end continued. of this, Exactly. And so it says on the bottom, see the rest of the story in this great new Star Trek Voyager TV series coming in January. How exciting. It was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. And one thing I did skip is the fact that the Vulcan guy knew that uh, Kellaway was not who he said he was by going ahead and checking the records on Callaway. And so that's how right, he knew on the Grissom. He, he was fake. Right. 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 Yeah. Now, I, I I don't really see how it ties in with uh, Voyager as far as kind of establishing the Maquis and talking about Chakotay and Voyager ending up in the in the 
Badlands. But uh, I, I like this four-page four story. Right. And the way I see it ties in is we find out how Janeway got her orders to go after Jakote. And wasn't Jakote heading to the Badlands? Right. When when they came into contact? Right. Yep. So there's a little... You see a little bit of what led up to the orders that, that Janeway was carrying out. Right. But yeah, so, other than that, that's about it. Right. So this uh, this happens like like maybe third, maybe ten, fifteen, twenty minutes into the episode, the first episode, because the first episode shows them Janeway kind of gathering the the crew. So she goes to Earth and gets uh, Paris out of prison and all this stuff, and then they end up on Deep Space Nine, and then from Deep Space Nine they end up going to the Badlands. Right. So. I, I was trying to really fit where this this four pages could have fit into that beginning story of Voyager. So I'm assuming that it takes place like while they're on Voyager. I mean, while they're on Deep Space Nine. Right. And yeah. and uh, Kim is losing all his money to Quark and all that other good stuff that happened in that ish- episode. Right. <laughs> yeah. So this really makes me think that. Malibu was planning on having a, a Voyager comic book series. Uh, in the letters page a few months back, a um, few issues back, they kind of mentioned that, that there was one in the works, but right. you know, since this was 15 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, we know that that never happened. Right. Well, when I saw this in here, I figured, oh, cross-marketing. So Paramount you know, wants to get the word out about the new TV series. Yeah. You are correct. So I don't know why they never did. Yeah. I don't know. But anyways, uh, it's a good issue. Or a good little story. Yeah. A nice little tack on. Any any other comments? I thought the whole Vulcan at the beginning and then, you know, doing the uh, commando kind of mission and his cloak and everything, mm-hmm. shutting down the uh, shields or whatever that was going to prevent transport. I thought that was kind of cool. It does seem kind of odd. I mean, it was all cool and everything, but when I started thinking about it, it's like, if this is a temporary Maquis station or something, would they really have time to put up those towers and everything? Right. And And would you really want to put up a shield that could be detectable or something? I would think you'd want to be stealthy. Right. With you those, know, and with not those be... pillars. Exactly. They're pretty tall. And, and plus, that must be putting off... I mean, if those, if those towers are indeed a shield generator of some kind, wouldn't you think that would put off EM that sensors could pick up on? I don't know. It, it just seemed a little little odd, but I think it was cool if you just don't, if I don't, just don't think about it as much. Right. Yeah, I agree. And right. the other the other thing I had was that that ship that he, I mean, this is all his story, so it's not true, but in the the flashback that shows the ship that he had to work on for them, it looks like a weird hybrid of a runabout and a old shuttle. Um, I mean, it, but it has the Starfleet logo on it and all that other stuff. So right. I thought it was odd that they would have a, an obvious Starfleet vessel of some sort, the right. Maquis. Right. Exactly. I agree. Yeah. That. That. Yeah. But members, I thought the Maquis is made up of um, settlers that were displaced by. The uh, the peace agreement made with the Cardassians, right, and and some ex Starfleet people. Yep. But yeah, I, I agree. You you think it would be something more nondescript, something that wouldn't attract as much attention 
right. uh, as a star a stolen Starfleet vessel. Yeah. But this is a make believe story, so I mean the guy's making it up, so that that didn't actually happen. So I guess right. in his flashback it could look however they want. <laughs> oh yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. So well, uh, anything else? Nothing. Okay. So uh, these three months we were in season three of Deep Space Nine, so uh, we can kind of talk about some of the highlights of those episodes, and then also in January, Voyager started, so if we wanted to talk about, or we can talk about um, the first four episodes of Voyager, since there wasn't a comic book series at this time. So, of these episodes of Deep Space Nine, that starts with The Abandon, which comes out in, in, in November. This was the episode where Quark finds a little baby, Jim Hadar. And then uh, they try to raise the Jemadar to not be as violent. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this might be the episode where they find out how dependent on Ketracel White they are. And, right. And, um, you know, Brashear tries to give them a substitute. Anything you want to talk about on that one? No, not really. Okay. Uh, the next couple, Civil Defense and... Meridian, uh, just run-of-the-mill episodes. I mean, they're they're good, but nothing great. But the next episode, Defiant, is the one where Jonathan Frakes comes back as who you Thomas? think is you think it's William Riker, but then right. you find out it's Thomas Riker. Hmm. So I really like that episode. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. It's it's always I've always liked the Riker character. Always one of my favorite characters. So it was great to see him back. So you, you Thomas Riker's your favorite, or or any of the Rikers, the Riker clones. What do you think? Of course, <laughs> of course, Will Riker. Come on. Right. That's a good episode. I liked it. And then they followed it up with another um, guest star in the next week, Fascination, where Luxwana Troy comes back, mm-hmm. and. It, I never really cared for her episodes on deep on Next Generation. Right. But for whatever reason, I think they really got her character right in uh, Deep Space Nine, and I really loved the Troy Odo interactions. Um, I I really enjoyed her her guest guest shots on on that series. Right. And to be perfectly honest with you, I don't remember much about that episode. And she was on multiple times. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, she she was in probably six, seven episodes, maybe. Oh, I'm sorry, Luxana. Sorry, Luxana. Yeah, right. Right. Gotcha. Not not Deanna. Yeah, my mistake. She was too busy going off making movies. Generations came out this these three months as well. Mm-hmm. All right, and then the last two of Deep Space Nine was um, Past Tense Part One and Part Two. What, time travel episode where um, Cisco goes back and come to find out uh, he he played a part in some r- race riot type things you remember the, those two mm-hmm. yeah so those are, those are good I think I always like it when they do the, the time travel stuff right time travel even though it is a sometimes overly frequently used trope if they do it right I, I like those I like those right. quite a bit 
I, I was kind of lukewarm on ti- on Time's Arrow, personally. Well, I, I think it had a big, great first part. The second part, yeah, I think kind of undid some of the great stuff that was kind of set up in Done the first, first episode. Yeah, right. And of course, that's next gen, but right. That was a season four, season finale, season five opener. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it was not as good as Best of Both Worlds. All right, and then lastly, real quick, Voyager came out with The Caretaker two-parter, Parallax, which uh, was the first real episode, and the next one was Time and Again, another time travel one, but they're kind of like re, almost like a Groundhog Day type thing where they're having mm-hmm. to relive a day or something like that. Right. Um, n- none of those, I thought. I mean, I think they were still kind of getting their footing as to who these people were, so none of them really jump out as being fantastic episodes, I think. It, it takes it takes an episode or two for people to get into character, I think. Yeah, and also I think the writers. Sure. I think I think the whole production group need to uh, figure out what works and what doesn't work. It, it's seldom they, they hit it out of the park in the first episode. Right. Or two. Well, usually the first episode's alright, it's just, you know, the later ones where they're really going into this is this is the this is how the show is going to be on a weekly basis those are the ones that are kind of usually a little off but that's right. just my opinion my opinion right and that is a good point about the pilot I mean they really try to make the pilot good because quite frankly that's what they're showing to the executives making the decisions about whether to buy or not right although I'm sure most of the Star Trek follow on uh, spinoff series they're pretty much going to happen it was just a question of what kind of tweaks they wanted to make it to ensure success. Right. All right, well, we need to go ahead and uh, wrap up for today. So we'll be back next week with episode 123, where we're going to do the original series specials 1 and 2. So it's uh, just two issues, but they're basically annual-sized issues, so we get lots of stories there. And, if I'm not mistaken, Ken... We get a surprise guest star, so look forward Ooh. to that one. Excellent. Looking forward to it. All right, so until then, uh, and that was a guest star as far as in the book. We won't have a, a host and guest star, just to be clear on that. Oh, okay. <laughs> Dang. Uh, all right, so uh, until then, I guess we'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for joining us on The Review. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name stcomic.com. Second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.